there's a momentum in American medicine that prompts us to layer on one treatment after another, not because we're bad people, doctors that is, Mm -hmm. but because treating is what we do. Hey everyone, I'm Jana Panaritis and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of scrambling to keep up with the demands of your own life, you're also caring for someone else in your life? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we hear from folks actually doing the work of care who offer tips and tools that you can use. We also talk with creative types, people using media to address major health issues and challenge widespread assumptions about aging. Stay tuned for episode 128. During his 30-plus years of clinical practice, Dr. Samuel Harrington came to understand what many of us have discovered from personal experience, that the American healthcare system is not designed to treat the nation's aging population with care and compassion. Dr. Harrington's work as a hospice trustee and later as a hospital trustee drove his passion for helping older patients make appropriate end-of-life decisions. He's channeled that passion into a new book titled At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. Dr. Harrington's a graduate of Harvard College and the University of Wisconsin Medical School. Now retired from medicine, he previously practiced internal medicine and gastroenterology in my hometown of Washington, D.C. Dr. Samuel Harrington joins us today from Stonington, Maine to talk about his new book, and how we can approach critical life and death decisions for friends, family, and ultimately ourselves. Dr. Samuel Harrington, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Well, Jana, thank you very much. I appreciate this opportunity, and I look forward to our chat. You described this book at the beginning as being about exit strategies, but I know that you don't mean what you refer to as making the end of life good or extending life. You also make clear that this book is not a philosophical treatise about what makes life worth living. So what's your intention with the book? Well, the idea of an exit strategy is that a person has to uh, have a plan Uh, as they approach the end of their life, particularly when we can see it, the end nearing in the elderly population. And I try and promote the idea of a vision in my book, which allows a vision of their death and how they would like to pass away. Nobody wants to pass away, but if they had to choose, how would this come about? And this particular concept crystallized when I was speaking with my father about his aortic aneurysm, a life-threatening ballooned blood vessel in his abdomen, he had been told by his internist and three surgeons at the age of 88 that he should consider very extensive surgery to permanently cure the problem. And when I outlined for him an alternative that was considered temporary but offered three to five years of disease-free life, he was ambivalent about that, too. And he looked at me and he said, why would I want to fix something that is going to carry me away the way that I want to go? And that really crystallized for me the idea that he had a vision. 
he his vision was to die quickly and although in this particular case that would have been painful it would have been over in hours because he would have refused emergency surgery and he would have taken palliative medicines and in that single sentence in a sense he crystallized the whole book which is to say know something about what diseases affect you think about them prepare a plan to decline treatment for some aspect of them and seek palliative care that in a nutshell is the book your dad's desire to what you quoted him as saying to wake up dead became a recurring mantra i wonder if you could sort of elaborate on what he meant by that and tell us about some of those conversations you had uh, which you referred to with your older sister regarding that recurring mantra sure that was his phrase i would like to wake up dead to indicate that he wanted to die quickly and preferably in his sleep, that he wanted to die after a vigorous life and live vigorously to the very end, and that he didn't want to dwindle. And in a sense, uh, he was also saying, I don't want to face a lot of decisions, uh, which is too bad because we all have to face them. But that concept informed us, myself and my three sisters, about his vision, and it allowed us to make end-of-life decisions for him and with him that would approach this or increase the likelihood of that kind of thing happening. Mm -hmm. Now, his reliance on letting his aortic aneurysm rupture was, in a sense, a variation on the theme of waking up dead Uh because it was sudden, but it's also random, and we can't, we human beings can't count on random acute events when in fact most of us, if we're lucky enough to live to old age, will die of something more chronic, a small acute event superimposed on some longer-term chronic disease. (laughs) But I specifically remember one conversation I had with my sister who was going out to see him, and she was worried about his health because he'd called to speak with her. I can't remember. I don't think anything particularly serious had happened, but he wanted to counsel with her on a variety of subjects, and she wanted me to cover the medical aspects of it. And I was still in practice at that point and couldn't take off right away to visit. And she asked me, what do I do if he gets pneumonia? I said, give me a call. What do I do if he falls down and hurts himself? And I said, well, if he's in pain, call 911. But if he's doing okay, give me a call. Because we were trying to protect him from going to the hospital. And what do I do if I find that he's not breathing? And I said, wait until he is cold and blue, and then call 911. Because that would be the exit opportunity that he was looking for. And I was saying with hmm. inside hmm. knowledge that if you call 911, they are committed to taking a patient to the hospital and attempting to resuscitate them, which is not what he wanted. So that may sound, that may sound harsh and cold on our part, but it, we know that, in fact, that's what he wanted. That's what he wanted, yeah. Wanted to pass away. Are you saying that if you call 911 when the person's cold and blue, they will not take you to the hospital? Because he's gone at that point. Is that what you're saying? That's pretty much what I'm saying. Okay. Uh, if every jurisdiction varies a little bit, and I was thinking of the jurisdiction in Washington, D.C., but if the EMTs arrive and a patient has recently passed away and they're still warm and it's not obvious when the death occurred, they are likely to start resuscitation attempts, mm-hmm. or at least 
communicate with the hospital about it while they drive the patient to the hospital to be either resuscitated or pronounced dead. But if a patient is cold and blue and Leviticus or stiff from rigor mortis, then no, they are not compelled to do that. Hmm. I wonder if you could talk a bit about your dad's quality of, of life in those last five years. If I can read from this really moving passage in your book where you talk about his failure to thrive. He wrote, the next two years just before his death were characterized by an accelerated decline and progressive debility. Watching his decay was so distressing. You wrote how a quote of Sir William Osler's helped you to, quote, rationalize my despair when observing his deterioration during that phase. And you talk about the grief felt by those observing dependence creep into and eventually take over the life of a proud man or woman. I think that's such a universal experience for many of us whose parents come from that, you know, greatest generation who do lose their independence. And we have to watch that. What was that like for you with your dad in those final years? Well, you're bringing tears to my eyes as I think about it, because... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll address that in a second, but I'll preface my comments by saying that he did undergo the aneurysm repair that I had suggested, and he lived three very good, vigorous years, but then he did start to dwindle from simply from old age. He just got weak and old, and we call that frailty or the geriatricians call it geriatric failure to thrive. So as he got weaker and older and more dependent on others, which he had hoped to avoid, uh, it was very uh, difficult to, for me to know that he was traveling across the country wearing Depends because he didn't want to create a scene in the airport or airplane. And, it was, and watching medical supplies roll into the house were always emotionally fraught for me, uh, and when he had to get 24-hour-7 help to help toilet him and to bathe him, that was difficult to watch. And although many people adapt to dependence very well, uh, I think you alluded to this generation of people who grew up through the Great Depression, et cetera, et cetera, and just had a different outlook, and my father just hated it. Now, he, did, he had wonderful caretakers, so that wasn't the issue. Mm -hmm. He just wanted to be alone. And at this point, my mother had predeceased him, so he was not living for somebody else, and he was not being cared for by a spouse. Uh, he was, in fact, dependent on people who were initially strangers but largely became great friends and companions. So he wasn't lonely, but he was diminished in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. Now, you referred to your mom who predeceased your father, and I want to talk about that a little bit. She was quite different in her character. Her character was quite different. And again, I'm going to go to the book because listeners should know this is a really accessible book with some really great anecdotes about your own personal experience. But I want to address this one section where you talk about your mom and you say, my mother was frail. She had suffered multiple osteoporosis-related fractures over the years. She had minimal exercise tolerance. Trips through the airport required the aid of a wheelchair. She was slightly demented. Her conversations were punctuated with gambits to cover forgotten facts. She was generally sedentary, but was surprisingly motivated by hair appointments, shopping trips, and family visits. Well, I can tell you right now, that describes my 88-year-old mother to a T. 
<laughs> she sounds like a really great lady. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about her decline because, you know, your dad survived several years after she did and her decline was quite different. Absolutely. My mother and father had a habit of traveling together. He was the vigorous one at this point. She was 82 and he was 86, let's say, for their last cross-country trip when he was pushing her through the airport to visit my middle sister out in California. And out there she was diagnosed with pneumonia. And as is so commonly the case, when pneumonia is diagnosed in an elderly patient, there can frequently be an underlying tumor involved. And in her case, the pneumonia cleared and a cancer was apparent. And she was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Mm. Well, my mother had been a nurse for the early part of her professional career. She was a pediatric nurse, and she'd seen all healthcare at its best and worst. And she had a pretty practical approach to things. And although we wanted her to live long enough to see my daughter get married that spring, her first grandchild to get married, she did not want to consider aggressive therapy because she knew that lung cancer was likely to be her terminal event. I remember speaking with her about what we considered her prognosis to be. At that time, the median life expectancy for her type of lung cancer was 10 months, and we had a very difficult conversation around that because she knew it was a serious illness, but nobody really wants to hear that kind of number. On the other hand, you have to keep that kind of number in mind if you're making the kind of plan she was, which mm-hmm. is to live five months to see her granddaughter get mm-hmm. married and then do her best after that. Mm-hmm. So uh, she had a little bit of chemotherapy to sort of slow the progress of the cancer. This is in January, February of her last year. And she did, in fact, make it to my daughter's wedding in May. And then she passed away in September, not quite at the 10-month mark. Mm -hmm. But I believe that it's unlikely for elderly patients to make it to the median life expectancy when they have such a diagnosis. And I think that's one of the lessons in my book. I have a chapter that the median is the message for elderly patients. And so we used that to our advantage. She died quietly at home because she entered hospice before traveling to visit my daughter and the wedding. Mm -hmm. And when she came home, she dwindled, but it was a fairly rapid course, but just enough time or plenty of time for all of us to visit and bring closure to that aspect of our lives with her. Mm -hmm. It's a real testament to your father that he did manage to rebound eventually because it sounds like your parents had a really strong marriage and and marriages like that, often one spouse goes within six months after the other dies. Um, Well, my sisters and I really thought that my father would, in fact, sort of spiral apart. But, mm -hmm. I mean, there were difficulties for the first six months or a year, but he did rebound and he found other things to keep him interested I want to agree with you They, my parents did have a good marriage, particularly the last 20 years of it after he retired and they were able to travel together and they were able to enjoy more time together and other difficulties had passed. Mm-hmm. But he did rebound and yet he, he was still fairly isolated, mm-hmm. which he brought upon himself in that he insisted on living at home and did not want to look into 
communities of elderly patients where he might have found other activities, but he was quite adamant about that, and we couldn't make him change. Mm-hmm. And they were in Milwaukee, is that right? They were in Milwaukee. They explored all the avenues. They explored assisted living or organizations that started with independent living and moved into assisted living and then were affiliated with nursing homes, but they rejected them all and then after my mother passed away, my father did not reconsider it or he had made his final decision and he wasn't going to do that. Mm -hmm. But he was social after that. I mean, it sounds like he just kind of did it his way. Is that right? That is correct. He lived uh, lived in a residential hotel and he Uh had friends and neighbors come over. He was perfectly social. He went out. They had a group that went to the high-definition Metropolitan Opera broadcasts every Saturday that Hmm. the broadcast occurred. He'd go to the occasional theatrical production and or musical production, and he had small, tiny dinner parties. My older sister, who organized his home care, had arranged for a cook. Well, let let me go back. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just after my mother died, my father spent a year or two cobbling together meals on his own, but when it was clear that he wasn't doing very well in that regard, my sister arranged for a professional cook who would come and did this as a service for elderly people. She would prepare a week's worth of meals that could be reheated in the microwave. Mm -hmm. And on the day that she was there doing the week's worth of preparation, she would also prepare a meal for my father and several guests. So once a week, he would have people over for dinner. Yeah, that's great. And, and yeah. I'm just curious to know how you discovered that your father wasn't doing very well with cooking on his own. I don't think my father could do much more than make a banana split Sunday. Um, <laughs> I'll have to give my sister's credit. I didn't come up with that, and I can't remember exactly. Okay. So <laughs> they, when they said there's nothing in his refrigerator, uh-huh. they decided that things had to change. Mm-hmm. Okay. So neither of your parents wanted hospitalization or nursing home residence, and they got what they wanted. I'm wondering what contrast you've seen in hospitals and how the medical industrial complex promotes this idea that we can have miracle cures and sort of promotes magical thinking about what the end of life looks like. Well... You know, we are bombarded as a society with images of youth, and we see on television and in the newspapers and magazines images of young actors playing old patients and receiving uh, chemotherapy with a smile and dancing up and down. And on occasion, those images are accurate, and largely they are false, and they are designed to sell a product more than actually sell the truth. In hospitals, we work very hard and appropriately to make things safer for patients, and we streamline care exceptionally well to decrease complications. But like engineering highways for safer driving, engineering hospitals for safer treatments tends to challenge doctors to push the boundaries, just like a driver will challenge the speed limit on a re-engineered highway Mm -hmm. and push the safety limits in both cases. So there are patients who get operated on, elderly patients who get operated on, who haven't received a full consultation explaining the complications that could occur with a higher frequency to a frail older person Mm -hmm. and without emphasizing that every time you go into the hospital, you come out a little bit weaker, uh, that there's a price to pay. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when my father was told by three 
surgeons to have his aortic aneurysm repaired with a large abdominal surgery, I stood between him and the operating room door, and figuratively speaking, and said, you know, if you have this surgery, there's a reasonable chance you will uh, lose your independent living state and will have to reconsider your attitude toward nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And at that point, he said, well, then I won't have this surgery. So that was an easy conversation in that he was a pliable patient, but but it was a realistic one, too. There's a momentum in American medicine that prompts us to layer on one treatment after another, not because we're bad people, doctors, that is, Mm -hmm. but because that's sort of the default position of American medicine. It's the path of least resistance. Treating is what we do. And I'd like people to think of doctors as generals on a war footing. All treatments should be tailored for the circumstances of a patient to be appropriate, but there is a tendency as a doctor or a general to want to engage the enemy with overwhelming force. So we really get in there and we don't back off once we've started treatment. And yet, when people are dying of old age or dying with old age, that's a special circumstance and dying with old age is not a battle that can be won. So you have to reframe your thinking around that kind of subject. Was it hard for you as a physician at times to resist sort of the pressure to treat certain patients? Absolutely. And particularly when I was a young physician and focused on technical skills, Mm -hmm. I really looked forward to doing things that by the end of my career, I was not looking forward to at all or refused to do. The insertion of feeding tubes is something that's a necessary undertaking when people will require long-term feeding, but they won't be able to swallow. So a patient who's going to have surgery for a throat cancer or something might have an elective feeding tube put in into their abdomen so they wouldn't have to swallow while they were recovering from surgery. And that was something that I looked forward to very much in the early part of my practice because at the time I was one of the few people who did it. Now, of course, everybody does it. All gastroenterologists do it, but I was sort of pridefully marketing myself as mm-hmm. the person who put in feeding tube. By the end of my practice, if a patient was demented or had a serious chronic illness and I did not see an end to the feeding tube, I would either decline to put it in or I would turn to the family and say, I will not put it in unless you tell me the circumstances on which you will have it pulled out or stop using it. Because if your loved one's condition changes from mentally functioning to functioning poorly because of a stroke or dementia, I would not want my parent fed against their wishes, and I want you to have that discussion with them before I put in this tube. Mm -hmm. That was the kind of evolution that I think is important to observe. So It sounds like your thinking in practice evolved as a physician over time with regard to certain procedures and resisting the urge to treat certain patients. Absolutely. Yeah. And doctors, or I think gastroenterologists, uh, I say jokingly that we are the doctors, if you think of human beings as a donut with an opening at the top and an opening at the bottom, we're doctors for the donut hole. Mm-hmm. And we keep the passages open, and that includes passages in the liver. I used to put in stents into the tubes, sort of like straws into the liver to keep the bile flowing. And under some circumstances, that's absolutely the right thing to do. And under others, I started to decline to do it. Uh Uh-huh. 
So on the patient end and the caregiver's end, what steps do you think, I should back up and say, I was wondering if you could give us an example of of how an aggressive treatment of what appears to be a trivial problem can go awry and steps that we can take to prevent such occurrences. Okay, this is a situation that is not in the book, Uh but is from my medical past. An 86-year-old woman came to the hospital bleeding from her intestine, and her gastroenterologist did a colonoscopy, cauterized the bleeding site, which is completely appropriate treatment, and observed her overnight. During the observation period, she developed a fever, and it was determined that the cautery had burned her intestine a little bit, and that she should be on antibiotics and possibly in the intensive care unit. So she was put on antibiotics, transferred to the intensive care unit, and treated. She had a surgical consultation, and everyone agreed that surgery was not indicated because this little burn mark called a closed perforation was so small. And one or two days later, her situation deteriorated dramatically, and she went into what's called septic shock. Now, septic shock in an old person is fraught with complications, and it's very likely that someone with septic shock won't survive, and if they survive, they will be compromised in most cases, and that is indeed what happened to her. She got kidney failure, she had brain damage, and she lost two hands and a foot to gangrene from her septic shock. Now, I make the point, this is in an article with... Uh, discussing this case that Mm -hmm. I'm trying to sell to uh, a newspaper, Mm -hmm. Uh, I make the point that if the family had said, we don't want my mother treated for septic shock, she's 86 years old, and we'd like to have her treatment withdrawn if you make that diagnosis, then she wouldn't have gone to a nursing home from her previously independent existence and then died in the nursing home some months later, having Mm -hmm. suffered enormous amount. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, it sounds easy to say we don't want her treated, but it is hard to actually slow down that kind of momentum that had been put in motion. Mm -hmm. But if her living will had said, I don't want to be given antibiotics for septic shock, and if her family agreed with that and promoted that, then some doctors would have been willing to back off. Uh And although the events that led up to her septic shock were completely appropriate, excellent treatment, completely understandable, once you get over a certain point, the likelihood of coming back is very small, and she really suffered unnecessarily for a long time. Mm -hmm. For people who don't know, myself included, could you give us a definition of septic shock? I mean, you described what happened to her, but what does the term septic shock refer to? Septic shock means that an infection escapes the confines of its original locality, like Mm -hmm. the burn mark in her colon or a bed sore on a butt cheek or a kidney infection, and the germs escape into the blood, circulate in the blood, and stimulate the immune system so dramatically that the immune system, in fact, turns on itself or turns on the patient and starts causing damage in multiple organ systems, usually the kidney, also blood vessels, which is why gangrene of the extremities occurs. Liver will fail during septic shock. Brain damage can occur. And that's because of the germs circulating, the bacteria circulating, and causing giant immune 
reactions throughout the body and, in fact, become counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Now, in a young person, it's critical to identify sepsis and septic shock and treat it aggressively and quickly because that person has reasonable chance of rebounding and living a long life. Mm-hmm. But in an old person, they will be most commonly harmed by the treatment and their life, which was unlikely to be very long because they're already old, mm-hmm. has now been foreshortened. Mm-hmm. I was really surprised to read in your book that the U.S. is just one of two countries in the world that allows direct-to-consumer pharmaceutical advertising, New Zealand being the other. What's the effect of this on U.S. consumers, and how does it shape our ideas about health care and how we can fight disease? Well, it is one of the two countries and developed countries in the world that allows this kind of advertising. And, of course, New Zealand is a tiny country by comparison. Yeah. So we are the only large country that allows this. And it's allowed based on the concept that people can make better informed decisions if they know about medicines. But most physicians and the American Medical Association take the position that this doesn't help that it actually misinforms patients, and it gives them ideas about medicines that might not be appropriate for their age or condition. Mm -hmm. And yet when a patient comes in and asks for a certain treatment, it takes much longer time to tell them that it won't work or that it's not appropriate than it does to give them the treatment or have them see another physician who will give them the treatment. And you have to keep in mind that all advertising is geared to sell. It's not geared to make us decline the treatment. It's not geared to educate us completely. Mm -hmm. And as evidence that drug advertisements work, we have seen an increase or there has been an increase in advertising budgets year after year after year because Mm -hmm. they help the products sell. I describe a case in my book of a woman who was about 88 and she developed a disease of the colon that created uh, diarrhea called ulcerative colitis and she did not respond to standard treatments but her family came to me and asked me to try a treatment that they'd seen in an advertisement which modulated or altered her immune system and I said that uh, I used that treatment periodically, but it hadn't been well tested in elderly patients. And I was hesitant about it in her case because she might have benefited by a little more time and she might have had a spontaneous remission. Mm-hmm. But I said, let's get an expert involved and get an opinion from a second gastroenterologist who specialized in ulcerative colitis. And indeed, rather than support my position that the patient should wait, that gastroenterologist started her on the immune therapy and two weeks later the patient felt great and three weeks later she was in the intensive care unit with a double pneumonia because a bacteria had been released and her immune system had been weakened and she died two weeks after that because of double pneumonia and it really started because she and her family had seen a commercial. And you drew a direct line between the medicine promoted in the commercial and the woman's oh, death. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, hmm. a, it's kind of an, a wandering line to from the commercial uh-huh. to her death, but sure. there was a direct line. That medicine cured her colitis, but caused her double pneumonia. 
and she died of the latter. Wow. Why is senescence or frailty, what we think of as old age, overlooked as a diagnosis? Well, uh, it's, it is not overlooked by every physician. There mm-hmm. is a subset of specialists called geriatricians who <clears throat> specialize in aging patients. But senescence is the idea that our bodies age and our organs weaken over time, not just our bones and joints, but our internal organs are weakening too. So our liver is, function is diminishing, our kidney function diminishes with age, our heart function diminishes with age and disease, and yet we don't really incorporate that into medical thinking as much as we should. I will say that I've read an article recently that frailty is being incorporated by some surgeons into their thinking in terms of either refusing to do surgery or counseling patients about the severity of the surgery. Mm -hmm. But certainly that wasn't the case 10 years ago. And if you looked good on the outside, people were willing to recommend surgical repairs, just like my father's aneurysm repair Mm -hmm. at 88. Mm -hmm. But the more we cure acute illnesses, medical care of heart attacks is better than it used to be. More people survive. Medical care of strokes is better. More people survive with less disability. But the more that people survive acute processes, the more likely they are to succumb to a chronic process, and old age is part of that process. The immune system starts to decline roughly after the age of 60. There are measurable declines in most people after age 60. (laughs) And immunosenescence is the term of art and science that is used to describe that. Mm -hmm. Could you distinguish between acute and chronic illness for listeners? Yes. um, Acute illness is anything that happens or the things that happen to us that can be effectively completely cured. Pneumonia is an acute illness. Appendicitis is an acute illness. A heart attack is an acute illness, which, if it causes no heart damage, is completely cured. But chronic illnesses are diseases that add up as little episodes of the disease occur, and they build and amplify the problem. So there are six chronic illnesses that are responsible for the deaths of 90% of Americans. Heart failure caused by heart attacks and viruses and other etiologies. Cancer, that's a chronic illness. Mm -hmm. Chronic lung disease caused by smoking and toxins that we inhale. Diabetes, dementia, and stroke. Those are the six chronic illnesses that the Center for Disease Control labels as responsible for 90% of the deaths in the United States. So a chronic disease is something for which there is no dramatic cure, and it can be improved, but it will never get better. Mm -hmm. I remember telling my father, I used to quote to some of my patients, the title of an old blues song by a guy named Red Allen, you might get better, but you'll never get well. Interesting. That describes a chronic illness. My father cut me off and told me not to quote the blues to him. He was thinking of another blues song, You've Been a Good Old Wagon Daddy, but you done broke down. <laughs> now, when we have a chronic disease, we can still die of an acute illness mm-hmm. superimposed on right. it. So in the sense that my father had hardening of the arteries 
as exemplified by his aortic aneurysm, he might have had a heart attack. That would have been an acute illness superimposed on a chronic one. Or he might have developed pneumonia superimposed on his general debility. But we have a tendency in old age to treat acute illnesses and then prolong the chronic illnesses. Uh-huh. And I'm all for that as long as patients understand that sometimes an acute illness is an opportunity to avoid prolonging life that they deem less desirable. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks who listen to this show have parents who are struggling with dementia, and I wondered if you could talk about why dementia-specific advanced directives might be advantageous as opposed to a standard advanced directive. Yes, I would promote a dementia clause in an advanced directive because I think the average advanced directive doesn't address it well enough. I think the average advanced directive uh, refers to neurologic disease and brain damage, and people don't equate dementia with that. And in general, dementia is so slow and so progressive and so predictable that there are milestones in demented patients' life that could be described and an advanced directive that progresses through the illness of dementia is called a progressive advanced directive so that the quality of life for a patient with mild or moderate dementia might be very good and they might enjoy life very much but the quality of life for a patient who has severe or advanced dementia is generally considered undesirable because that would be associated with a bedridden status, being unable to understand what's going on around them, unable to understand what people are doing to them medically and why. Mm -hmm. And so I promote in the book the concept of a progressive advanced directive so that if I'm in the early stages of dementia, I'm treated normally. I might not want to be resuscitated in the event of a cardiac arrest, but otherwise treated normally in the progressive stage of dementia. If I'm severely demented, I might want to decline antibiotics for any form of infection and be given palliative care if I'm in a severe state of dementia and have established that it's severe by passing certain milestones, Mm -hmm. such as being unable to recognize my family Mm -hmm. or my daughter or my spouse for two months or a week or six months. It's up to you to choose. But when people are dying of dementia, where dementia is the primary diagnosis, demented patients tend to have a longer life expectancy than age-matched heart failure patients. Hmm. So if I have a patient with advanced heart failure and they are bed-bound by their disease and have been hospitalized three times or four times in the last year and they're unable to take care of themselves, can't feed themselves, can't dress themselves, they're unlikely to live more than six months. But if I have the same physical disability applied to a demented patient, in that where a demented patient is unable to care for themselves and is bed-bound, they are likely to live sort of 18 months in, if you were matching clinical parameters. Wow. And that's one of the cruel aspects of dementia, that the disease goes on longer and the quality of life can't be improved. Wow. That's fascinating. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on how you're preparing for your own better death and how you define a good death for you. Well, that is a great (laughs) great challenge. I have prepared by writing this book, and I have a daughter. uh, I have two 
two daughters. One is a neonatologist hmm. and one is a surgeon. Hmm. I have a son who's a lawyer, so he can review the papers. <laughs> but I have indicated that my surgically trained daughter will be my primary agent and that she is to follow the stipulations that I've outlined in the book. My book suggests ways of, for other people to think of how they approach end-of-life questions, but I'm counting on my daughter to make cold-nosed calculations uh -huh. and put a, f a tray of food in front of me, but don't feed me if I get to that point, and I think she'll follow through. Yeah. I read that your wife encouraged you to reinvent yourself after your medical career, and you've done it with this book, and I know that you and your wife write a blog called Gap Year After 60. How else do you spend your time? Well, my wife challenged me to reinvent myself, and I consider that I'm still working on that, obviously. Uh -huh. But in terms of the challenge I've accepted is to write a book and become public with some of my opinions, whereas in the past I was just a standard run-of-the-mill gastroenterologist who kept his head down and tried not to make waves. So now I've challenged myself to try and make waves, and that's my form of reinvention. We left Washington, D.C., where we had a wonderful life and career and decided that we would try and downsize and live more simply, and so we've moved into our vacation cottage in a remote town on the coast of Maine, where we're engaged in civic activities on a much smaller level. Mm -hmm. I'm on a nursing home board here, and I'm a recreational lobsterman, and I'm looking forward to travel to promote my book, and then I'm going to look forward to getting back to real life on the coast of Maine, where your your life is ruled by the winds and the tide, by unnatural forces. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Wow, that sounds terrific. I want to give you the opportunity to add any last thoughts before we close. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that we didn't talk about? I would. I have two messages for patients. One is you should develop a vision, and then you should share it with your family. And you should share it regularly and you should discuss this as much as possible. And although everybody resists that, and it's very hard to break through, and the hardest conversations are hard even for doctors and doctors' families, the only way to approach it is to blunder ahead. But create a vision and blunder ahead and discuss it with your family and your physicians. And I want to suggest that people study their condition, and if their doctors won't help them study and learn about their condition, so they can make educated choices, then they need another doctor. So if your doctor won't take the time to talk to you about your disease and your prognosis, either get a consultation with a geriatrician or get another doctor. And finally, I'd like to say that if you would like to die at home, it's fundamental that you understand when it is appropriate to say no to hospitalization. And that is what my book is focused on. We've been speaking with Dr. Samuel Harrington, author of At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life, which outlines specific active and passive steps older patients and their health care proxies can take to ensure that loved ones pass their last days comfortably at home and or in hospice when further aggressive care is inappropriate. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website where you can learn more about this terrific accessible book, which is loaded with great information, including chapter notes at the back and a list of resources. Dr. Harrington, thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing what is truly a compassionate and honest approach to helping older patients make good end-of-life decisions. 
Jana, thank you for this opportunity, and I deeply appreciate the fact that you clearly read the book in its entirety <laughs> and reflected its contents very, very well. This was terrific. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. Yours.